Father, may we truly believe the truth that we have just sung. That in Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He rules and reigns forever in all places and all times over all people and all events. And so we, as your children, are safe in the palm of your hand. Thank you. That you reign forever. So help us to see the grace and glory of your one and only begotten Son this morning as we look in on a very powerful and poignant scene in which we see the beauty and the value of Jesus. Show us that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team for leading us this morning outstanding. It has been such a great morning already. There's a part of me that says, oh, I, okay, we could just, I could just pray and say amen. We could go home. All right, I knew that was coming from somewhere and someplace, but um, God has a great message for us this morning from His Word, and so I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 And this is such a powerful text that if you don't have a Bible with you, I would really, really this morning encourage you to find a Bible near you. We have a church Bible for you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible located in the hymnal rack beneath you. It's page 1011 in your copy of the church Bible. Because as we turn the chapter from Mark chapter 13 to Mark chapter 14, it is a turning of the chapter for Jesus. He is now, he is now on the straightaway, the final straightaway to his death. Everything in his life, every step Jesus has taken is leading to this point. The cross is fewer than less than three days away now. This is the final straightaway for Jesus. He has come to live his life on purpose and to lay his life down on purpose to ransom us, to redeem us, to save us, everyone who will trust in him. And that's where we pick up this text as Jesus is on now the final straightaway to his death. Mark chapter 14 and verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Final preparations, final strategies are being made, for they said, we can't do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. 
She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus, the beginning of the end for Jesus. This is the word of our God. Well, it's hard to believe that we are already in mid-August of 2023. Would you agree with me uh, on that? Hard to believe. And so it is back to school time, and when it's back to school time at the Fields household, that means everybody gets to do their their favorite semi-annual thing. It means they get to take a trip to the dentist. (laughs) After which, we come home with five brand spanking new toothbrushes. Now, most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about toothbrushes until about two weeks before our dentist appointment. But uh, toothbrushes play an important role in our oral health and well-being. Now, now maybe I'm out of touch with reality, but I've lived nearly 52 years, and I've never seen anyone frame a toothbrush and put it on their living room wall. Anybody seen that? I've never seen a toothbrush even framed and put on the dentist's wall. Why not? Because although a toothbrush is useful, it isn't beautiful. And so when it ceases to be useful, I don't frame it. I toss it. It's disposable to me. On the other hand, if you were to walk into the entryway of our home and you were to make your way up the stairs to our upper floor, you'd walk by on the stairway a wall of framed photographs of our children. Those photographs are there not because they're useful. They're not holding up the wall. They're not covering up holes in the wall. Those photographs are there because to Joanna and me, our children are precious and beautiful. Some things we keep around because they're useful. Some things we love because they're beautiful. So why do you follow Jesus? Is it because he's precious and beautiful? Or is it because he's useful? You see, Jesus can be kind of a handy guy to have around, right? I mean, he makes me healthier, wealthier, and wiser. He makes my marriage better and my kids nicer. With him, my pain is more manageable and my future is more meaningful. But what happens when Jesus doesn't meet my expectations? What happens when my marriage blows up or my career tanks or my pain becomes unbearable? What then What if, like some Christians in Afghanistan and and China and India, I lose everything because I follow Jesus? Will I still love Jesus? Will I still follow Jesus? Will I still worship Jesus? 
Will I still say what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You, you know, my flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are the strength of my heart. You're my portion forever. Say that? Because this scene in Mark chapter 14 shows us that we don't worship Jesus because he's useful, but because he's beautiful. And that's why the big idea of this scene today is that Jesus is worthy of extravagant worship. I mean, no holds barred, reckless, abandoned kind of worship. And when we, listen, when we offer Jesus anything short of that, we enter the danger zone of using Jesus as a means to get what we want rather than worshiping Jesus for being all that we need. So where are you this morning? Because that's what's going down right here in Mark 14, where Mark frames this scene with the darkness of Jesus' impending death. Did you notice that? It begins, the scene begins with the reminder that Jesus is going to die, and it concludes with the reminder that Jesus is going to die. It's two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so the crowd in Jerusalem is growing. It's, it's the perfect time for the religious leaders to, to finally take Jesus down with so many people in town. They've got to play their cards just right. They can't cause a stir among the people. And so they'll have to arrest Jesus under the cover of night before Passover hits full stride on Friday afternoon. And so when we look in on this scene, we should see the cross falling over this scene, the shadow of the cross. Jesus is going to die The only question is, how are they going to get to Jesus, these religious leaders? It's the question we're asking as Mark opens the scene in verses 1 and 2, and it's the question Mark answers when he drops the curtain on this scene in verses 10 and 11. Notice notice that what happens in Simon's dining room is so poignant and powerful that it will push Judas Iscariot over the edge. He will be so angry at Jesus that he will leave the dinner party early to make a beeline for the chief priests, where he, of his own will, his own volition, his own choice, will agree to betray Jesus for cold, hard cash, 30 pieces of silver. Now, that's not just some random price, because according to Exodus chapter 21 in the Old Testament, that's the going price for a slave, a slave. That's how much Jesus is worth to Judas. You see, when Jesus is no longer useful, he's disposable. Because Jesus was not living up to Judas' expectations. Judas wants a political Messiah who will serve Judas' best interests and overthrow Rome. He wants a king who will make him a player on the world stage. He wants position and power and prestige that comes from being on the inside with the king. So when Jesus talks about dying rather than reigning, Judas is thinking, you know, for three years, I followed Jesus. For three years, I've given up my livelihood. I've spent time away from family. I've sacrificed so much for Jesus, and I've received nothing in return from Jesus. I'm 
out. Listen, following Jesus for the fringe benefits is a scary place to be because rather than worshiping Jesus, we'll be using Jesus, and that's really what's going on right here in this scene at Simon's house in Bethany. Now, Bethany is just two miles outside of Jerusalem. It's just east of the Mount of Olives. It's where Jesus has been spending his his evenings, his nights, during his final visit to Jerusalem. And here now, on Tuesday evening, Jesus has received a dinner invitation from a man named Simon. Now, there are lots of Simons in Israel. Lots of guys with that name Simon, kind of like there are lots of guys in America named John or Tom or William. And so to differentiate this Simon from all the other Simons, people have given him a name tag. He's Simon the what? I thought you might have been uh, dozing off already, so we'll try that again. He's known as Simon the what? Simon the leper. That's significant, because if you are a leper, do you host dinner parties? No. If you're a leper, you don't even live in a home in town. You live in a colony in the country. You're segregated. You're isolated because your disease is terminal. It isn't just that there is no cure. It's that there's no treatment. You don't head over to the pharmacy for some Cipro or Avalox or Amoxicillin. You're contagious, and you're a dead man walking. So you are ostracized and stigmatized. So we need to ask, why is Simon the leper hosting a dinner party at his home in Bethany? There's only one plausible answer. It's that somewhere, sometime, somehow, he's been healed by Jesus. And so now, out of love for Jesus, Simon is opening his home to Jesus. Let's just pause for a moment right here. Let's apply this to where we live and who we are. Jesus is worthy. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus, then what Jesus did for Simon, he's done for you. You were a dead man walking when Jesus freed you from your living death sentence. It wasn't leprosy. It was something infinitely more dangerous and deadly. It was sin. But then, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2 says, but then God, who is rich in mercy, reached out to us in and through Jesus. And he came to us. And he healed us. He gave new life to us. So that now I sing, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Jesus changes everything. And so like Simon here, we want to be around Jesus. We open our home to Jesus. We invite others to spend time with Jesus, like Simon does here. He must have had a rather large home because the 12 disciples are there, and then 
We read in John chapter 12 that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there too. And everyone's just kind of hanging out around the table. They're reclining around that table. They're eating dinner together. Maybe they're chatting about how Jesus had changed Simon's life. Or, or maybe they're doing kind of a replay of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead just a few months earlier. Maybe it went something like this. You know, but Jesus, you, you really caught us, caught us off guard with, with that one because we thought Lazarus was a goner for good. I mean, he'd been dead for four days. And, and remember, remember Martha, what Martha said when you told her to take the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Remember what she said? She said, but Jesus, he's been dead for four days. He's going to smell. He's going to stink. And I would like to think that they all laughed out loud right there. And, and then someone says, but, but Jesus, when, when Lazarus walked out of that tomb, there wasn't even the slightest smell of death on him. And maybe that's when Lazarus says, okay, guys, you know, you laugh all you want, but that was the best day ever. And it was all because of Jesus and then suddenly and silently, a woman gets up from the table and walks toward Jesus and kneels at the feet of Jesus. Notice that Mark doesn't tell us her name in this text, but John does. It's Mary. It isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And she's carrying an alabaster flask of pure nard Ointment. Now, I know the nard part doesn't impress us, right? It just doesn't sound very nice. But the only thing we know about this ointment is that it's very, very costly. It's so costly that it's not the stuff you can buy at Macy's or Nordstrom's. It's a family heirloom that would have been passed down from generation to generation because it's the best stuff that money can buy. So even on eBay or Facebook Marketplace, it would bring 300 denarii, an entire year's wage for the common worker in that day. So we're talking twenty dollars or $30,000 or $40,000 worth. Let me ask you guys, how much you love your wife? You ever bought her perfume for that amount? If you have, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to meet you. Twenty dollars or $30,000 or $40,000 worth in today's money. He said, that's why Mary doesn't carry this in her purse. It's her security for the future. It's in the safe 24-7, except for now. She's thinking that if the stock market tanks and I lose my job, I always have this alabaster flask to fall back on. I can live for a year on this. And so we know that what Mary does here isn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. It isn't a, and her, and a, her emotions are running away from her kind of thing. It's a premeditated and purposeful things, thing. She has brought this with her on purpose to use to worship Jesus. She is going to make a statement, a loud statement. 
about how beautiful and valuable Jesus is. And so when she kneels before him and opens the flask, she doesn't dribble a few drops on Jesus' head and say, you know, i got to be super careful with this. I mean, this is my future. This is my rainy day fund. So just a little dabble, do you? No, Mary is going to pour out her future. All of it, her security on Jesus. Not just by emptying the bottle, pouring it out, but by breaking the bottle, anointing Jesus down to the very last drop. John tells us that she doesn't just anoint Jesus' head. She anoints his feet. And then she washes her feet with her hair. It's an all-in, no-holds-barred affection. It's reckless abandon. It's extravagant worship. It reminds me of something that happened about 10 years ago when I, when I owned a beautiful, deep blue Chevy Impala. I buffed that thing out. I waxed it regularly. I kept it looking as new as a seven-year-old car could. One Saturday, I was at the church finalizing some last-minute details for Sunday, and I, I had our two youngest daughters, Mary and Amy, with me. They were five and three at the time, and they were playing outside, and after a while, Mary came running in, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, I have, I have something to show you. I, I love you, and so I drew you a picture. I expected her to show me a piece of paper, you know, with a drawing of a horse, and, and Daddy and Mary are riding the horse together. And instead, she said, come here. I want you to see this. It's, it's out here. And so I followed her outside to the back of that blue Chevy Impala. And she says, look, Daddy, here it is. And that's when I realized that she had taken a rock and had drawn a picture in the paint of my car. Through the clear coat, through the paint, all the way down to the primer. After all the money I had spent in purchasing that car, all the time I invested in buffing and waxing that car, and now there is an I heart you, Daddy, drawn into the paint of that car. And I know what you're thinking. You're wanting to know, okay, um, we don't care really about the story. We just wanted to know how you reacted. <laughs> Initially, I didn't say anything. I couldn't. I was in shock. <laughs> but then I thought to myself, you know, this is not an act of rebellion. It's an act of affection. She's drawing a picture for me on the rear quarter panel of my car so that everyone will know that Mary hearts Daddy. It was an expression of pure, innocent, forget-the-consequences kind of love. And that's Mary right here. Jesus is precious. He's worth infinitely more than a twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollar bottle of ointment. And so she's holding nothing back from Jesus. She's pouring out her love on Jesus. And in that room on that night, it is not her words that speak volumes, it's her actions. And as the fragrance fills the air, a hush falls over the room. Eyebrows raise, eyes widen, chins drop to the floor. Everyone is looking on in disbelief. Not a wow, isn't that cool kind of disbelief, but a woe, that is not cool kind of disbelief. 
That's the response from the disciples. They aren't just ticked at Mary. They're indignant. And so they scold Mary. The Greek here actually tells us that they are snorting at her. They're scorning her. I mean, the words are staccatoed that are coming out of, their, out of their mouths. Mary, what are you doing? And John tells us that it's Judas Iscariot who is leading the charge against her. Really, Mary? Who are you trying to impress? Who do you think you are? Who do you think Jesus is? I mean, this is so over the top. A $10 bottle of perfume? Sure, have at it. Even a $100 bill? Okay, you can go there. But Mary, this is too much. This is such a waste. You've wasted it on Jesus. I mean, if you're just going to throw money away, why not throw it at something practical like feeding a poor family for an entire year? Listen, you can go and read John chapter 12, and you'll see that John says, you know, it really wasn't that Judas cared about the poor, it's that Judas was in charge of the money bag for the disciples, and that he was a thief. But I think the point that Mark wants us to see here is that when you break the flask and pour out your love on Jesus and give, give up so much to make much of Jesus, some people are going to say about you, what the disciples say about Mary. And sadly, the scolding isn't always going to come from unbelievers on the outside of the church. Sometimes it's going to come from believers inside the church. Your actions are going to be misunderstood. Your your worship is going to be maligned. Your motives are going to be misrepresented. When I was a youth pastor... There were times I had parents walk up to me to talk to me about their children, and they would say something like this, you know, Pastor Ken, Johnny believes God is calling him to be a pastor. Sally thinks that God wants her to be a missionary. But Pastor Ken, if they follow through on that, they'll be throwing away all their God-given math and science abilities. It'll be such a waste. I mean, Pastor Ken, do you... Do, Do you know their ACT scores, their SAT scores? you know they're in the top 2% of American young people? They would have their pick of colleges and universities. Johnny would be such a gifted surgeon. Sally is such a successful engineer. So, Pastor Ken, can't you see where I'm coming from? Can't you talk some common sense into them? You know, as their mom and dad, we want them to follow Jesus, but this is just too much. This is too far. Listen, when you love Jesus extravagantly and you worship Jesus wholeheartedly and you follow Jesus faithfully, others will call you, maybe even your own family members will call you radical and fanatical. But remember, you do not live for an audience of many. You live for an audience of one. The one who comes to Mary's rescue. And as as I look in on this scene, at this point in this scene, I'm beginning to wonder, is Mary now second-guessing herself? Was it over the top? 
Maybe she's thinking, I I should have asked someone's permission or at least gotten a second opinion. And maybe those are the things running through her mind when Jesus lifts his hand to speak. And maybe Mary's expecting Jesus to say, listen, Mary, you know, Mary, I appreciate the thought. I appreciate the expression of love. But, but you know, Mary, a little moderation wouldn't hurt. Or maybe the disciples, when Jesus raises his hand to speak, are thinking, maybe they're expecting Jesus to say, okay, guys, you know, just lighten up. Cut Mary some slack. We all know she tends to get emotional. She just got a little carried away. But now. Now, when Jesus raises his hand to speak, he doesn't pile on Mary. He doesn't excuse Mary. He rescues Mary by defending Mary. Leave her alone, which in Ken Fields' terminology is shut up. I'm going to shut this down. My my kids are going to laugh about this. I like to use that phrase. I'm going to shut this down right here, right now. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I love that. I love that Jesus says that. I love that Jesus considers our expressions of love and worship a beautiful thing. You say, but Pastor Ken, that's because she gave so much. Well, actually, the last scene before Mark chapter 13 is a lady who gave so little. Two mites that together make a penny. And Jesus at that point in that time said, look at her. When everyone else is giving so much, she's giving so little, but she's giving all she has. I love that Jesus considers our expressions of love and worship a beautiful thing. You may think it's just dropping a check in one of the offering boxes along our back wall. You may think it's just reading a Bible story to your kids before bed each night. You may think it's just taking a meal to somebody who's recovering from surgery. It's just a visit. It's just a call. It's just a card. You may think it's just listening to boys and girls say their Bible verses in Awana. But it's infinitely and eternally much, much more than that. It's beautiful. Thirty years ago, in Ankeny, Iowa, I led a group of Sparks boys in Awana. Every Wednesday night for 30 minutes, I would listen to them say their verses. And still today, 30 years later, when I see the mom of one of those boys, when our paths cross, Jared's mom, Darcy, she and her husband, Tim, now live in South Carolina. She will say to me, Pastor Ken, Jared to this day, who's almost 40 years old, still talks about how God used in his life. It's not because of who I am. It's not because of my greatness. It's because of who God is and his greatness. That's what makes our gifts to him infinitely and eternally valuable. 
to Jesus, it is a beautiful thing when we pour ourselves out in making much of him. And that's why he says, listen, guys, you will always have the poor with you. There will always be opportunities to do good and to care for their needs, and you should. But you will not always have me with you. Mary has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, this is where theologians in the text, they, they love to ask, does Mary really know what she's doing? Does she know that in just three days, Jesus, Jesus will be dying? Well, I would say this, based upon what Jesus himself says here, I believe that somehow, some way, God in his mercy and kindness has opened Mary's eyes and she's clued in while she's, while, while she's in the room with a bunch of men who are clueless. And that's why Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memorial of her. In other words, Jesus is saying, I will never forget what Mary has done. And I won't let you forget either. And that's why 2,000 years later and half a world away, it's through a woman's eyes and a woman's heart that we see the infinite worth and beauty of the one who will die for us. The one who comes to Mary's rescue by standing between her and the condemnation the disciples are heaping on her and Jesus there answers for her. Notice here, Mary doesn't say a word. Only Jesus does. He answers for her. And when he answers for her, notice Judas Iscariot leaves. The accuser walks out. And so this is more than just a touching scene. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus on the cross where he will step in to take our condemnation, where he will answer for us. In this story, Mary is facing condemnation she does not deserve. But in our story, we face condemnation we do deserve. And Jesus steps in. He's our intercessor. He's the go-between. He's the one answering to God for our sins, rescuing us from our sins, becoming the substitute for our sins, dying in our place. It's what Romans 8, verses 33 and 34 say. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's chosen people? Because it is God who justifies. He's the one who declares us righteous in Jesus, who is to condemn there's nobody left to condemn. Judas leaves the room because Christ Jesus is the one who dies. More than that, who's raised. Who is even this morning at the right hand of God who in, indeed is interceding for us. Is that true for you? Who will defend you? Who will advocate for you? who will answer on your behalf because when you come to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, you have a defender and an advocate and one who will answer and plead your case so that you don't say a word. He does. So before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue, Judas himself, can ever bid me thence depart. 
That's Jesus. That's the beauty and the glory of his amazing grace answering in our place with his perfect life and his willing death. Will you trust him to be your defender and your savior? To take the condemnation your sins deserve. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. You say, but Pastor Ken, you don't know me. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You're right. You're right, but I do know Jesus, where he's been and what he's done and who he is. And he is enough. So Romans 10 verse 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. No caveats. Jesus is enough for every single sinner. He can and will answer as the intercessor, the mediator, the go-between, the advocate, the defender. Is he your Jesus? Will you come to him? Will you trust him to be the answer for your sins? And when you do, you may be wondering, okay, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a worshiper of Jesus. So what are the takeaways from this scene for me? Pastor Ken, when I walk out of this room today, what, I, what should I be thinking and feeling and doing as a result of this text? Now, we could talk about giving to Jesus extravagantly and worshiping Jesus wholeheartedly and following Jesus faithfully. But it's evident from Judas's reaction that this isn't a three takeaways kind of scene. This is a deep dive into my soul kind of scene. Because it's an, is Jesus really beautiful to me or is he just useful to me kind of scene. In this tale of two people, Judas and Mary, which one am I? Why do I love Jesus? Why do I worship Jesus? Why do I follow Jesus? Why do I give to Jesus? This is a scene that dives into the deepest recesses of our hearts and demands that we open up and identify the motive behind why we follow Jesus. As I asked in the beginning, I ask once again now, can we honestly echo the words of Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is all of that for me. So he's everything to me. He alone is worthy of all my love, all my worship, all my life. And so as 2 Samuel, 2, uh, 2 Samuel 24 verse 24 says, I will not offer anything to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. It's what Isaac Watts wrote in that great hymn entitled When I Survey when he says this, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Because 
to me, Jesus is everything. For me, he gave everything. Amen. Father, this is your word. These are your people. So now by your spirit, move in our midst and in our hearts to point us to your son. In Jesus' name, amen.